and heard the voice of millions of angels. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Good morning, church. Man, what a joy it is to be with you today to worship our risen Savior, one with another, to encourage each other on the journey, to dig into the Word of God, to discover how we're called to live, to lift His name on high in praise, because we know we serve a risen Savior, amen? Indeed, He makes all things new in our life, which is our theme this year, Uh, and so we're digging into that through the book of Revelation over the next few weeks in the series we're calling Reveal. We're in our second week today, and so we're glad that you're here today to join us in that study. Uh, If you're a guest with us here this morning, thanks for joining us, being a part of our time together this morning. We hope that you've seen Christ in our midst, that you've felt the Holy Spirit in this place, and if you're looking for a church home, hey, we'd love to have you as part of our family right here at Cross Point to join us in telling the story of hope that is Jesus Christ, what this world so desperately needs. And that is one hope that is foundational, that will never go away, that is strong in all things, and that is Jesus Christ. Uh, We are so glad to be together today to celebrate His name and lift Him on high. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 today, and we'll be out by dinner time tonight. (laughs) Thanks for coming. No, that's not true. Uh, we're going to just glance at chapters 2 and 3, but then dig into chapters 4 and 5. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, turn with me to chapter 4. We'll be there in just a few moments. I, I don't know how many of you have ever plugged in uh, to the, uh, the thing called the Internet. Anybody ever done that? Yeah. There's a thing called, uh, I think it's called WebMD. And basically, if you've got some symptoms, uh, you feel sick and you can get on that website, you can kind of plug in how you're feeling, and it will give you a result of, hey, these are some things that might be wrong with you. Uh, the flip side of that is if you know, for instance, you have the flu, you can plug in that thing, and it will tell you the symptoms you're going to have, more than likely, if you've got the flu or the cold or whatever it is that you plugged in. But it tells you kind of the diagnosis for where you're headed and maybe what the treatment is for what ails you. Uh, and as we dig into chapters two, three, four, and five, what we discover is Jesus tells us, the church, what ails us, what, is, what are some of the symptoms of living in the world, and then what the treatment is for the issues that he finds wrong with the church. And in chapter two and three, Jesus says every single time that a church is mentioned, he says, I know. Jesus knows the life of a church. He knows the the hilltop experiences, he knows the ministry events, he knows the valley moments, he knows each and every one of us by name, and that can be a little scary at times. But the bottom line is Jesus knows. He is on a throne in heaven, and he reigns supreme. 
He is God, King of kings and Lord of lords. And nothing will ever change that. As we dig in and understand chapters 2 and 3, what I want us to see is that John, in his revelation, writes down these letters to seven churches, and they're listed by name. But if you'll remember last week, we talked about symbolism in the book of Revelation and how numbers are significant to that. It's no, it's no, uh, there's no reason why we should doubt there are seven churches mentioned, because the number seven is the idea of being complete, being whole, being finished. And so what we discover in that is not only is he writing to these seven churches, but he's really writing to all of the church, which includes us today. John wrote this work in about 95, 96 AD, and so this would have had deep uh, meaning for that first century church, but we can also glean meaning for us today in our culture of where we rest as the church and feel that culture pressure against us, if you will. And so Jesus goes down the line and begins talking about uh, the symptoms of these seven churches, and what I want us to realize is that if you are a church who claims to serve Jesus Christ, then you're going to find yourself somewhere on this spectrum. That's what Jesus wants us to know today at Crosspoint, that we will be somewhere on this spectrum as the dust settles and we begin to really do some introspection on our fellowship of Christ. That first church that he addresses is the church at Ephesus. And he says that they've lost their desire for relationship. Now, he goes on to say that uh, I know your work and I know how faithful you have been. uh, And you can be involved in all kinds of ministry, but if you don't have love, then you don't have anything. If you remember, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians. He says, listen, you can have all the knowledge in the world. You can be doctrinally correct. You can have the Bible memorized. But if you don't love people and you don't love God, then it doesn't mean anything. And Jesus is calling this church to go back to its first love, relationship with God, deep intimate relationship, and relationship with other people. Two other churches that he mentions uh, in chapters 2 and 3 are Smyrna and Philadelphia. Now these churches are on track. Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say about these churches. They are bearing witness to the gospel account, the life of Jesus, in the community where they find themselves. They are living out that story, they are loving God intimately, and they are loving those around them while bearing witness to what Jesus has called them to do. There's a church located in Pergamum. Uh, This particular city has fallen to cultural compromise, Jesus says. It happens to be the imperial seat for Rome in Asia Minor, which is current-day Turkey. And so you can understand that throughout the course of any given day, week, month, year, there are going to be lots of high-level dignitaries from Rome in this particular location. Matter of fact, they have all the temples to the Roman pantheon of gods located in this city. It is a difficult place to be a church that says there is only one God, and that God is Jesus Christ. They even have a temple to Augustus Caesar. You celebrate Caesar as a god as well. It's a tough environment to be the church, but they're called out by Jesus to to kind of go bow up against the culture in which they live. Another city that Jesus addresses is Thyatira, and they were tolerating idol worship. And we know that idol worship is more than just a carved out figure, that it could be anything for us. 
It may be money, it may be salary, it could be the type of things that you're collecting, the people that you run around with. Your idol is whatever you value most in your life. And for Thyatira, they were tolerating this idol worship. As a matter of fact, in the letter, Jesus calls out and says, Jezebel has led you into idol worship. If you remember Old Testament story, King Ahab was married to Jezebel, and Jezebel brought Israel into idol worship. The next city that he addresses is called Sardis, and it's the largest of the seven cities that are represented uh, in chapters 2 and 3. It, it would have been the largest church and then also a model for how church should be done. And so there would have been a lot of startup churches, a lot of smaller community churches uh, that uh, were house churches, rather, coming to Sardis to discover how best to do church together in the town in which we live. And so Sardis was very active in the things that they were doing. But Jesus says that they've spiritually fallen asleep. They're doing lots of ministry. There's lots of activity. But what Jesus wants the church in Sardis to know that uh, Christian activity does not equal intimacy with Christ. And we can get really busy doing ministry. We can get real busy on the church calendar, so to speak, getting involved in different things. But again, if we don't have love, if we've fallen asleep spiritually, then those things really don't matter. Religious things do not equal a deep relationship with Christ. And finally, there's Laodicea. This town would have been very medically advanced. They would have been a wealthy community. And so they had become very self-reliant. We really don't need the Holy Spirit. We're, we're kind of managing here on our own. We've got lots of accolades. We've got lots of stuff going, a lot of money in the bank account. We're kind of uh, shaking things up here. We're doing okay. And so like many churches, especially in America, we can become very self-reliant, not really looking for or needing the Holy Spirit in the mix because we've got this one. And Laodicea had become that very thing. And Jesus is saying, do not rely, church, on your own accomplishments. Don't rest on your laurels but you need to rest and rely on me. And what we discover in all seven of these churches is this idea, this summary, that God is fully aware of the life of a church, that he knows everything happening in Crosspoint and churches around the world who claim to be his. He knows those high points, he knows the valleys, he knows each and every one of us by name. And what he's asking us to be in our culture is a faithful witness to the gospel message. To be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ. That even in moments where you think it's difficult, that it's risky, that it's, I'm not sure if this is what I need to be doing, maybe I'm going to get a little pushback. Even in moments like that, when we're facing our culture, Jesus is calling us to witness for him in the culture we find us in, ourselves in, whether that is at the workplace, in our neighborhood, with our friends and family maybe even in the church in which you attend, that we're called to dig in and share that message of hope. So what do I do with chapters 2 and 3? I mean, what if I, what if I look at my own self, my own life, and I, I indeed discover that, man, I'm, I'm kind of lukewarm in my Christianity. I'm kind of just painting by the numbers here. I, I don't have a real deep passion. What, what happens if I'm facing that cultural pushback and I feel weak in the moment, and I'm not sure that I can live up to being the witness God's called me to be. What if I'm overwhelmed with the challenges that life throws at me? 
How can I be the person that God's called me to be? Well, if chapters 2 and 3 are really what's wrong or what could be wrong with our faith walk or our particular congregation, if we find ourselves somewhere on the spectrum, if, if that's the diagnosis, then chapters 4 and 5 are the treatment, the prescribed treatment that Jesus gives for how we move through that and become a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. You see, for every diagnosis in life, there is a primary treatment. There may be some sub-treatments, but there's a primary treatment for the thing that we discover is wrong in life. And as Jesus describes that, what he says for any church that is not being the full witness they could be for Christ, Jesus prescribes worship. No matter what your symptoms are, no matter what's going on in life, the way that you overcome is worship. And church, I'm not talking about one hour on a Sunday morning. While our time here together certainly is worship, it is a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week thing that we do as Christians and followers of Christ. Worship is every day of your life. How you live out, what type of character and integrity do you have? How do you treat people? How do you, how do you uh, vocalize and, and how, what do the words look like that are coming out of your mouth? How do you drive like on the interstate? Everything, church, is worship. I saw several wives just elbow their husband, by the way. No matter what you do, no matter if you're a Christ follower or not, you worship something. And maybe in your life, the most important thing is money in the bank. It's the salary that you're making, and, and you're going to do whatever it takes to make more money. Maybe it's the nameplate on the door, and your job is to rise that corporate ladder. Maybe it's where you live, the type of house you live in, what you drive, the circle of friends that you have. But each and every one of us have something in our life that we worship, something that is our God. And what Jesus Christ wants to do in Revelation is to remind all of us as followers of Jesus that he is God and that only him is the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He is everything that we would hope because within each one of us is this built-in innate desire to worship something bigger than ourselves, something greater than we are. And Jesus says, I am your hope. I am your foundation. I am everything to you and for you. Because see, we end up needing in our life hope and identity and purpose. And if you're anything like me, you've put your hope and your identity in things along life's way and you've discovered it's come crashing down. It will not withstand. But if you're also like me, and you put your hope in Jesus Christ, what you discover is all along the way, he never fails. He's always there. He'll never let you down. He'll empower you in ways that you never imagined possible. Paul tells us in Romans that there is only one hope, and that is Jesus Christ. So we continue uh, the story with John in chapter 4 and verse 1. John says, then I looked and I saw a door standing open in heaven and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. 
And the voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after all this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. John wants to invite us into the continual tour of heaven. And he's doing his very best to describe it to us. Because remember last week, there, there are no words to describe what is indescribable. There are no human words to let us know truly the glory of God. And how awesome his throne room is. And what heaven truly looks like. And so John uses the word like over and over and over to describe what is indescribable. I don't know if you've ever been uh, abroad, traveling abroad, or maybe you've been on a mission trip to a third world country. Uh, Maybe you found yourself in the middle of an island or the middle of Africa or maybe in the slums in India. And so many times I've been in those spots and people ask me, especially kids, they ask me questions like, what's it like to ride a roller coaster? What is it like to open your fridge and have it full of food? What is a fridge like? What is it like to go to the grocery store and have too many selections? What's it like to have a doctor who can actually prescribe and take care of you? And see, in those moments, they've got no frame of reference. How do I describe to them what it's like to be on a roller coaster? For me, it's like screaming like a five-year-old girl. That's just what I do. I I don't get on roller coasters anymore. But it's hard to describe when you don't have a frame of reference. In verse 2, John uses the word throne. And if you've got your own Bible, I'd encourage you to underline that or circle it because it's going to be important in Revelation. In chapters 4 and 5, that word is used 16 times, and throughout the letter of Revelation, it's used 46 times. Why is that important to you and to me? Because what we need is proof and truth that there is a throne in heaven, and Jesus Christ sits on that throne, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is God. And because of that, you and I, have all the faith in the world and what he can and will do and has done for us. We believe in that risen Savior who is on the throne in heaven. John goes on to continue to describe what he sees in verse 3. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches like with burning flames. And this is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a human. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered with eyes inside and out. Day after day and night after night they kept on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, 
The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, and they, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Isn't that incredible? Wow. John does his very best to describe what the center of heaven truly looks like. But we find the throne in the center with the sea around it. And in ancient times, the sea was a a dark and dangerous place. We'll see that recur in the letter as we go through and study. But it's it's like crystal glass. And in ancient times, people board a ship, they go out to sea, and they sometimes don't come home. Sometimes you don't know just what's under the water surface. Sometimes I'm a little skittish about getting in the ocean. I'm not sure what's under the water. But John says that sea surrounds the throne. And in the center around the throne are these four living creatures representing all of creation. The lion, the ox, the eagle, the human being. And that next set of circle is 24 thrones, and on those thrones sit the 24 elders. Now, most scholars believe, more than likely, this is 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament and the 12 apostles from the New Testament coming together to make this circle of 24. And what is biblical worship anyway? Tim Keller says, seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth is true biblical worship. When we're reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for us, you and I realize and know how much Jesus is worth. He is worth everything. He changes our lives. He makes everything new with us. See, our theme isn't just a cute little slogan on the wall, but it is absolute truth. That Jesus Christ changes everything. And when we're reminded of his worth, it calls us to give our very best to him, to lift him up, to glorify him, to worship and praise him. We're reminded of his power and it strengthens us and our grip as we push back against culture who wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. But so many times we undervalue just how important and powerful and glorious Jesus Christ truly is. We walk around with a burden of anxiety and worry, not giving it to him, not confessing and knowing how important he is in our lives. We, we look at our own faith walk, and sometimes we don't do something because it seems a little risky. I may lose something, maybe a relationship, maybe an interaction, maybe some money, and so I'm not going to do that thing because it's a little too risky. We have lost sight at times from just how powerful Jesus Christ truly is. And when we end up undervaluing Jesus, we treat prayer like we're doing him a favor by talking to him. We We treat the message of the gospel story like it's a a story with a punchline that everyone already knows, so we're not too involved in it. We treat the word of God like it's an antique that we need to leave on the shelf and not handle, not worry about it. 
A.W. Tozier once said, a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils and a high view of God is a solution to 10,000 problems. Worship is the solution to 10,000 problems. And we don't confine that worship just to Sunday morning for an hour. But again, every single day of our life, his worship to God, every single possible moment we give to him. And some of you have discovered what worshiping God 24-7 truly looks like. You look like Jesus Christ in your life. As you interact with people, as you live your life out giving him glory in all things, you've discovered what it looks like to worship all the time. Our text continues in chapter 5 and verse 1. John says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne, that's Jesus. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. You see, John understands and knows how important the Word of God is in our life. How this is the blueprint to get us through this life to the next life with Jesus Christ. Yet no one, no no living creatures, no elder sitting on a throne, no one in heaven was powerful enough to open the Word of God until we get to verses 5 and 6. Someone taps John on the shoulder while he is crying. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out to every part of the earth. John looks up to realize the lion of Judah is standing in heaven, but it's also the lamb of God. And because the lamb has sacrificed himself, we too get representation in the story of God. We too are extended grace and mercy and forgiveness. We too will get to live with Jesus one day. It is the lion and the lamb. That's how we know our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And the idea today is that we would join all of creation every single day of our life and worship our risen King. And so we're going to end today a little differently than we normally do. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to join me as we read the rest of chapter 5. And right when we're done reading chapter 5, the praise team will be on stage, and they're just going to lead us in some time of worship. We're going to turn the lights down a little bit. But it's going to be a moment for us to stand together and read in the text who Jesus is and how awesome he truly is and then lift our voices in praise to him and then we'll end the morning with a benediction and ascending. So church, if you would, stand with me. As we read together, on the screen will be all of our text. I'll read in white and you read in yellow, if you would. 
beginning in verse 8. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood was ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne, to the Lamb forever and ever. Church, what do we do when we feel compromised? What do we do when we feel culture push back against us as we try to witness for Christ? What do we do when we feel maybe we're losing our grip on the faith that once was so strong within us? What do we do? We worship. That is the remedy. What Jesus calls us to in our life, that every single day, every moment, is an act of worship that gives him glory in all things. And as we sing these next few songs, our shepherds and their wives will be gathered along the wall of this room. And maybe as we sing, you want to stand there and just reconcile yourself as we sing, but maybe some of you might need a prayer, a prayer of reconciliation, a prayer to move forward in your journey, your faith walk. I want to encourage you to go find one of our shepherd couples and let them pray for you and over you while we sing. And at the end of this time of singing and praise, benediction, and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Let's sing together.